Welcome to another strange and unsettling episode of American Hauntings, the podcast hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. This is the season of the podcast where we take you behind locked doors and down the sketchy back alleys of Hollywood, the movie capital of the world, a place that's supposed to be all about palm trees, swimming pools, and movie stars. Until it isn't. Hollywood is a place of sunlight and shadows, murder and mythology, and has been home to more cranks, kooks, lunatics, and murderers than you'll find in your average asylum. We're taking you for a one-way ride down the dark streets of Los Angeles in Season 5, the so-called City of Angels. But as you might have realized from Part 1 of this two-part series within a series of the podcast, the only angels you'll find around here are the fallen kind. This is the second part of the horrific tale of the Black Dahlia, one of the most gruesome unsolved murders in L.A. history. Don't listen to this episode until you've heard episode 82 first. And for that matter, why not listen to the whole season? It started with episode 70 and will end at some point, but I don't know when. Each episode delves into Hollywood crime, corruption, murder, and of course, ghosts. Just keep in mind that the episodes in the season are definitely not suitable for all listeners. So listen at your own peril. And if these two episodes haven't convinced you to stay wherever you're from and not go to Hollywood to make it big, well, I don't know what will. It's a better idea to just pull down the shades, lock the door, and listen to this new episode of American Hauntings. In our last episode, our listeners heard about the death of Beth Short, the young Hollywood wannabe who became infamous as the Black Dahlia. Even though her death remains unsolved after all these years, there are suspects who have emerged, some convincing and some not, but all intriguing. So bear with us as we try and untangle the many different aspects of this confusing case with a deeper dive into some of the most unusual and compelling possible murders of the legendary Black Dahlia. One suspect, named rather convincingly in a recent book, was Leslie Dillon, a 27-year-old bellhop, aspiring mystery writer and former mortician's assistant. He became a suspect in October 1948 when he began writing letters to LAPD police psychiatrist Dr. J. Paul DeRiver, who we mentioned in our recent episode about the Babes of Englewood. When the correspondence began, Dillon was living in Florida, but he had previously lived in Los Angeles. Dylan read an article about the case in the October 1948 issue of True Detective magazine in which DeRiver was quoted, and he wrote to the psychiatrist about his theories in the case, signing the letter, Jack Sands. He mentioned his intense interest in sadism and sexual psychopathy and wrote that he hoped to write a book on the subject. He never confessed to the crime. Instead, he offered up another man as a likely suspect, an acquaintance named Jeff Connors. As the letters between the two went back and forth, DeRiver began to believe that Connors was a figment of Dillon's imagination and that Dillon had committed the murder himself. In December 1948, Dillon agreed to meet DeRiver to discuss his theories and was given the choice of three cities, Phoenix, Los Angeles, or Las Vegas as places to meet. Dillon expressed reservations about coming to Los Angeles and chose Las Vegas instead. DeRiver sent him an airline ticket and then went to Las Vegas to meet him, along with Sergeant John J. O'Mara of the LAPD, who posed as DeRiver's chauffeur. 
The two men met in Las Vegas, and Dylan agreed to accompany the psychiatrist on a drive back to California, but only if they could go to San Francisco first so Dylan could point out Jeff Connors to deliver. After reaching San Francisco, they searched for Connors but could not locate him. Needless to say, Dr. DeRiver was not surprised. After several fruitless days, Dylan was handcuffed by an undercover officer and officially taken into custody. They soon departed for Los Angeles. When they got there, the police held Dylan in a hotel room for days, where he was brutally questioned in an effort to get a confession out of him. Desperate, Dylan sailed a postcard out the window with a plea for help on it. It was discovered by a passerby and in a twist that would have seemed ridiculous as a plot in any movie, it was turned over to a lawyer who helped get Dylan released. Soon after Dylan's arrest, police investigators discovered that the imaginary Jeff Connors was a real person, and his real name was Artie Lane. Lane had lived in L.A. at the time of the murder and worked at Columbia Studios, a favorite hangout of Beth Short's, as a maintenance man. Leslie Dillon, it later turned out, was likely in San Francisco at the time of the murder. Dillon later filed a $100,000 claim against the city of Los Angeles for false arrest, but he quickly dropped the lawsuit when it came to light he was wanted by the Santa Monica police for robbing the vault of a local hotel while he was employed there as a bellhop a few years earlier. This was the real reason he didn't want to meet DeRiver in Los Angeles. The scandal caused by DeRiver's missteps with Dylan partially triggered a 1949 grand jury investigation of the police handling of the Black Dahlia case, along with several other unsolved murders at the time. DeRiver lost his job with the LAPD in 1950 after being found guilty of illegally writing morphine prescriptions for his wife. Dylan eventually faded into obscurity and became a bizarre footnote in the strange and convoluted case. The most popular Black Dahlia murder suspect, and only in recent years because he was only briefly suspected in the 1940s and dismissed by detectives, is Dr. George Hodel. Thanks to a massive publicity campaign launched by the publisher of a book by his son Steve, many people have taken for granted that the Dahlia case has been solved and that Hodel was the killer. He wasn't, and I'll explain why. As mentioned, George Hodel was investigated by the police about Beth's murder. He came under scrutiny when he was arrested on a morals charge in October 1949. At the time of his arrest, Tamar, the doctor's 15-year-old daughter, told the police that she had been involved in an incestuous relationship with her father and that he'd murdered the Black Dahlia. This occurred just as the Black Dahlia case was about to go to the 1949 grand jury, and the LAPD hoped that Hodel might rescue them from the scandal caused by the arrest of Leslie Dillon. The molestation charge led the LAPD to investigate Hodel, who was a physician who specialized in public health and sexually transmitted diseases, and he became one of the many suspects in the Dahlia case. At the time of Beth's murder, Hodel was medical director and chief of staff for the First Street Medical Clinic, a venereal disease clinic in Los Angeles. Hodel was placed under surveillance by the police and recording devices were planted in his house. But after many hours of investigation and the questioning of dozens of witnesses who knew Hodel, it became evident he was not connected to the crime. 
At Hodel's trial for incest and immoral behavior, three witnesses testified at his trial that they were present in the room and saw him having sex with Tamar. However, family members testified that Tamar was a pathological liar, and Hodel was acquitted in December 1949. It was recommended that Tamar receive psychiatric care. Now, don't get me wrong, Hodel was a freak. He was deep into the avant-garde art community in LA and was also known for hosting orgies at his home. In addition, he had previously been accused of playing a part in the death of his secretary, Ruth Spaulding. Ruth died from a drug overdose and Hodel was investigated by the LAPD in 1945 for her suspected murder. He was present when Spaulding died and had burned some of her papers before the police were called. The case was dropped for lack of evidence, but documents were later found that indicated Ruth may have been about to make public the accusation that Hodel was intentionally misdiagnosing patients and billing them for laboratory tests, medical treatment, and prescriptions they didn't need. But he was ruled out in the Black Dahlia case. There was absolutely nothing to connect him to Beth, her murder, or anyone else in the case. There were witnesses to his whereabouts during the time that Beth was missing before her body was found, so he couldn't have done it. But that didn't stop his son from accusing him of murder. In 2003, George Hodel's son, Steve, published a book claiming his father, who died in 1991, had in fact committed the Black Dahlia murder, as well as a host of other unsolved murders for the better part of two decades. Steve Hodel came up with the idea when he saw two pictures in his dead father's photo album that he said resembled Beth Short. When viewing these two photos, anyone can plainly see that the pictures in George Hodel's album look nothing like Elizabeth Short. Beth's family issued a statement saying that neither of the photos are of Beth. The resemblance, they said, quote, is not even close. In November 2004, CBS aired a segment on the show 48 Hours about Hodel's claim that his father was the Black Dahlia killer. CBS hired a professional photo identification expert for the New York Police Department to examine the photos. Using a computer system for facial recognition, she examined the photos and then compared them to known photos of Beth Short. She then stated that she was, quote, 85% certain that these two photographs are not of the same woman. Later, one of the photos was eliminated when the woman in one photo came forward and identified herself as Maria Marco. The woman in the other photo remains unidentified, but it's not Beth Short. But even if one of the photos was Beth Short, which it's not, mere possession of a photo of Beth doesn't make anybody a killer. But it is a hard fact that neither of the two photos presented by Hodel are of Beth Short. When faced with this, Steve Hodel changed his story and said it didn't really matter whether the photos were of Beth Short because they only served to get him interested in the case. All the real evidence came later. Well, Steve Hodel is perpetually discovering new evidence, but without the foundation that his father had a photo of Beth Short, his massive case doesn't mean anything, but even so, we can still pick it apart. Starting with the fact that Dr. Hodel was never a prime suspect in the Black Dahlia case, it was barely mentioned, and only then in desperation as the LAPD was facing grand jury scrutiny. And there's more. One of Hodel's strangest claims was that Beth's murder was an homage to a photograph taken by the surrealist artist Man Ray, who lived in Hollywood during World War II. He claimed Dr. Hodel and Man Ray were friends and his father admired his work so much that he posed Beth's body as a tribute to his photo, The Minotaur. Hodel claimed that this proves his father was the killer. 
The problem is, is that Dr. Hodel and Man Ray were not friends. They didn't know each other at all. But Dr. Hodel was a patron of the arts and he likely knew of the photo, but again, this really doesn't prove anything. It's more likely that Beth's arms were bent back above her head because her wrists had been tied to bathtub shower pipes when she was bisected. Hodel also claimed that his father was the one who sent the Dahlia notes to the Examiner and other Los Angeles newspapers. He employed handwriting expert Hannah McFarland to examine nine of the notes that were sent to various newspapers, and according to Hodel, McFarland verified that the handwriting on the paste-up notes originated with George Hodel. Therefore, Hodel stated, his father was the Black Dahlia killer. Well, this isn't true either. McFarland's report makes it clear that what she actually said was that the results were inconclusive. Handwriting samples from George Hodel were taken from several different time periods because experts agree that handwriting changes throughout a person's life. Well, these samples were all used to compare with the letters, but another red flag, McFarland never saw the original samples of the newspaper letters, only second and third generation copies. Producers from CBS had the samples analyzed by two forensic experts, and they concluded there was no evidence the notes were written by the same person. John Osborne, one of the most respected document examiners in the field, stated, quote, There is simply not enough evidence to prove one way or another whether his father was the writer or not the writer. Investigators believe that Beth's murder took place in a room that was less than 15 minutes away from the vacant lot where the body was found. Steve Hodell claimed that the murder site was at his father's house in the Los Feliz district of Hollywood. This landmark home, built in 1926 by Frank Lloyd Wright in the Mayan revival style, was located far enough away that it would have taken more than 30 minutes to drive from there to Norton Avenue in 1947. Based on this and other things, Dr. Hodell had been eliminated as a suspect by the grand jury investigators. Steve Hodell also identified the old black Ford sedan that was seen idling at the curb on Norton Avenue, where Beth's body was found as belonging to his father. The problem was that Hodell was known to drive a post-war black Packard sedan at the time of the murder. Obviously, this is not the same car that was identified by anyone at the scene. And finally, the biggest flaw in Steve Hodell's theory? In September 1946, Dr. Hodel suddenly returned to L.A. from a trip because he'd suffered a serious heart attack. He was hospitalized in September and October of 1946. It's not plausible that he had the physical strength to stalk and kill Beth Short just two months later. But in spite of all this, Hodel got some reputable people to go along with his theory. After reviewing the information presented in his book, Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay proclaimed the case was solved, but others have noted that Kay, who has since retired, formed this conclusion by treating Steve Hodell's many disputed assertions as established fact. Detective Brian Carr, the LAPD officer in charge of the Black Dahlia case at the time of Steve Hodell's briefing, said in a televised interview that he was baffled by Kay's response, adding that if he ever took a case as weak as Hodell's to the prosecutor, he'd be, quote, laughed out of the office. In a September 2006 television interview with investigative reporter Bill Curtis, Carr added, quote, I don't have time to either prove or disprove Hodell's investigation. I'm too busy working on active cases. While Hodel's case against his father seems too weak to even bother with, it has not stopped him from maintaining that it's accurate, raising the number of his father's alleged victims to more than 30. 
and also claiming that Dr. Hodel was responsible for a number of other high-profile murders, including the Zodiac slayings, which took place in Northern California during the late 60s and early 70s. Needless to say, his claim that his father was the Black Dahlia killer is just a little hard to swallow. But now we come to the part where you want to know who I think killed the Black Dahlia. Well, I have to tell you, for starters, I don't know. I have a theory, but it's pretty complicated and full of so many moving parts that likely only basic elements of it are true. But even then, I can't even say that for sure. The murder of Beth Short remains unsolved, but trust me when I tell you that when I die, I'm going to be looking for a lot of answers on the other side. I want to know who the Axeman was that committed all the murders in the Midwest in the early 1900s. I want to know who Jack the Ripper was. I want to know who committed the murders that Lizzie Borden got blamed for. And most of all, I want to know who really killed the Black Dahlia. I have ideas, and right or wrong, they make sense to me, when we start looking at what happened to Beth when she returned to L.A. in the fall of 1946, who the people were that she was mixed up with, and the level of police corruption in Los Angeles in the late 1940s. Things were so bad that a grand jury had to investigate the graft and crime committed by police officials in 1949 and the department's many ties to the mob. So, here we go. I will break it down as simply as possible. When Beth returned to L.A. in the fall of 1946, after her rendezvous and subsequent breakup with Gordon Fickling, she was lonely, broke, and possibly pregnant, but we'll get back to that. With no other options, she moved into the house owned by Mark Hansen and became one of the young women that entertained male guests at his nightclub. Unfortunately, as happened to many young women who went to Hollywood to become movie stars, Beth's luck ran out, and she did what she needed to in order to get by, which is what put her in touch with Morris Clement, the pimp for L.A. madam Brenda Allen. Beth was beautiful, and she could make a good deal of money as a paid escort. Even though he had been seen with Beth before her death, Clement never became a suspect in the murders. In fact, his name didn't even turn up until the district attorney's files were opened in 2003. Why? Well, it was connection to Brenda Allen and the L.A. mob. As the guy who drove around Allen's girls, he was connected to the major mob prostitution ring in the city, a vice ring that was known to pay generously for police protection. It might prove perilous to the important men the LAPD wanted to protect if anyone started looking too closely into Morris Clement. But if Beth was part of the protected call girl ring, why kill her? Well, the 2003 release of the district attorney office's files provided some pretty startling information about the crime. During the initial interviews with Beth's friends, it was one of them who suggested she might have been pregnant. It wasn't just a guess. She was. Will Fowler, the first reporter at the crime scene in January 1947, noted that there was an incision in the victim's abdomen and the uterus had been removed. Surgeons and medical experts later confirmed Fowler's observations. The addresses of at least four different suspected abortionists were also found in Beth's address book. The DA files revealed information that the medical examiner kept secret for more than 50 years, that Beth had been pregnant and there was an abortionist involved in the crime. Public records stated that she had not been pregnant, but this was the control information that had been kept secret so the detectives could determine a true confession from a false one, or at least that's what they claimed. But it had not been the accidental death of a young woman who died while having an abortion. This was no mistake and no accident. Beth died from being beaten savagely in the head and from blood loss and shock from the knife cuts that sliced up her face prior to any incision in her abdomen. 
The uterus, along with her unborn baby, were removed after her death. The fact that Beth was pregnant and her baby was removed post-mortem seems to offer a new view of the crime. It also provided the most important element in solving a murder, a motive. Detective Harry Hansen always believed that Beth's killer was someone she knew. If the baby's father was not Gordon Fickling, which could have been possible, then the name of the man who fathered her baby was probably among the names that were removed from her address book before it was sent to the newspaper. It's hard to say who the father might have been, but it could have been someone pretty important in L.A. at the time. If Beth really was working for Brenda Allen's prostitution ring, and I believe she was, her beauty would have made her popular among city officials, wealthy businessmen, and studio bosses in Hollywood who were Brenda Allen's top customers. I honestly believe that Beth got herself mixed up with one or more powerful men and ended up getting pregnant by one of them. It's also very likely, based on Beth's past behavior, that she somehow imagined this was going to be your chance to get out of the disappointing life that she was leading and live happily ever after with a wealthy man. As we know, Beth lived with the tragic delusion that happiness and marital bliss were waiting for her as soon as she found the perfect man. I think it's very possible that Beth approached this man when she discovered that she was pregnant, believing he would be pleased, but he wasn't. But Beth may have been terrorized before she even tried to approach the baby's father. If Morris Clement had arranged Beth's liaison with this man and had become pregnant, it explains many of the mysteries in this case. It was understood that the girls who worked for Allen should not get pregnant. If they did, they went to see a mob abortionist who took care of things. Those who didn't cooperate ended up with serious problems. Allen's clients were among the wealthiest and most powerful men in the city. If Beth didn't proceed with the abortion, as Morris Clement must have warned her, she would have reason to be afraid. Before she left L.A. for San Diego, she was very upset and told her friends she was scared. In San Diego, the French's later reported that she was anxious, worried, and bitter fingernails. On January 4th, she contacted Mark Hansen and asked him for money. Well, this turned out to be a mistake. She told him where to send it in San Diego, and two days later, three strangers appeared at the French's front door looking for Beth. She was terrified and turned to Red Manley for help. He moved her out of the French house and on January 9th drove her to Los Angeles. On the drive north, Manley described Beth as anxious and said that she was frequently turning around to look at the passengers in nearby cars. He believed she was worried they were being followed. Beth had no plans to stay in Los Angeles, but there was someone that she wanted to see in L.A. before she left. They stopped for gas in Laguna Beach, where Manley said Beth made a call to someone. I feel confident in saying that the person she called was likely the father of her unborn child. It would have been too great of a temptation not to try and get some help from the man who had gotten her pregnant. Perhaps she'd approached him already, perhaps not, but perhaps it was simply a call for assistance, looking for enough money to get her home to Massachusetts, or again, well, maybe not. We'll never know. Depending on who this man was, Beth's desperate situation might have convinced her that blackmail was in order. It's possible she threatened this man, wealthy, powerful, probably married, with exposing his secret unless he paid her off. We'll never know for sure, but perhaps an arrangement was made for them to meet at the Biltmore Hotel. But the man never planned to meet her at the Biltmore at all. He sent someone in his place. Feeling threatened, the man placed a call that filtered through the LAPD to the mob. Brenda Allen's operation was part of Ben Bugsy Siegel's business. If there was a problem, Siegel or his man Mickey Cohen had to take care of it. 
At the time, though, most of the dirty work for the mob in L.A. was being done by Jack Dragna, the thug who had been running L.A. before Benny Siegel came to town, and you may remember that story from an earlier episode. Siegel was by now spending most of his time in Los Angeles, which left Cohen and Dragna to deal with problems in L.A., and Cohen and Dragna hated each other. Although Dragna couldn't talk to Cohen, he could talk to Siegel, even if they didn't get along. He told Siegel that he didn't want anything to do with what was essentially Benny Siegel's problem. Well, Siegel was in town that week. He'd arrived on January 6th and was told that Beth was causing trouble. He was irritated with Dragna, but on the other hand, Brenda Allen worked for him. Plus, solving an embarrassing problem for a business mogul or studio boss would be a major marker for the mob. It was a debt that could be called in for repayment later on. Siegel told his minions that he would take care of things himself. When Beth Short and Red Manley arrived in L.A., she dropped off her luggage at the Greyhound bus station and then told Red that she was meeting her sister Jenny at the Biltmore Hotel. But Manley was unable to locate Beth's sister before he had to leave. He left Beth in the lobby at around 6.30 p.m. According to Jenny, she had no plans to meet Beth that night, so we have to conclude that whoever it was that Beth was supposed to be meeting at the Biltmore was someone whose identity she did not want to reveal to Manley. Most likely, it was one of the people whose names were later removed from her address book. The bell captain at the Biltmore said that Beth used the payphone in the lobby to make several calls after Red Manley left. She was also seen in the restroom, probably hoping to look her best for her baby's father. Beth was last seen in the hotel lobby at 10 p.m. We have no way of knowing if she met someone at the hotel, departed on her own, or was taken away against her will. We only know that the final sighting at 10 p.m. was the last time Beth Short was seen alive. I believe that Beth was taken from the Biltmore, most likely by Morris Clement. And I believe that she was then taken away and held captive at a location not far from where her body was found. She met her end not long after she vanished, and that end was not a pleasant one. Many years after the Black Dahlia case had faded from the newspapers, a retired LAPD detective named Vince Carter decided to write down the many stories of crime and corruption that he experienced within the department. He had one story that was very interesting. On the night of January 14, 1947, two detectives named Archie Case and James Ahern were working out of the Wilshire Station on Pico Boulevard. As they were driving, they saw a dark-colored sedan run a red light as it traveled east with its lights off. They followed the car to a bungalow court at 836 Catalina Street. Case and Ahern silently got out of the car and quickly walked toward the bungalows, just as the fourth man, the driver, got out of the sedan and walked around the car to the sidewalk. The detectives followed him toward the rear bungalow, then darted forward and grabbed him before he opened the front door. Ahern shoved his badge in the man's face and yelled, Police! Startled by the two detectives as they came out of the darkness, the man panicked and rushed through the door into the bungalow. The detectives charged after him, pulled their guns, and ordered the driver and the other three men inside to put up their hands. After they were searched for weapons, the men were ordered to provide identification. The man who seemed to be the leader of the group took a card out of his wallet and handed it to Ahern. 
It was a police courtesy card. He told Ahern to turn it over, and the detective saw a handwritten notation on the back. It read, quote, The bearer is a friend of mine. Any courtesy you show him will be appreciated. It was signed Captain Jack Donahoe. Written below the signature was Donahoe's home telephone number. The man urged Case and Ahern to go ahead, give him a call. Captain Donahoe had been the detective's boss when they were working robbery, and as Ahern walked over to the telephone in the bungalow's hallway, he knew the captain would not be happy to get a call in the middle of the night. But as he reluctantly picked up the phone, he noticed something else, a smear of blood on the wall. Looking down the hallway, he saw more blood. While Case held the four-minute gunpoint, Ahern followed a trail of stains and smears to the bathroom, which looked like a slaughterhouse. Blood was splashed and spattered on the walls, the floor, and even on the ceiling. Sides of the tub and the sink were covered in blood. Bloody towels were crumpled on the bathroom floor and in the hallway. The men refused to say where the blood had come from. Knowing they were in way over their heads, they called Captain Donahoe. When he arrived, he took the leader of the group aside for a private conversation and then told Case and Ahern that all the blood was easily explained. The men had thrown a poker party that got out of control. There was a fight and a friend had gotten a bloody nose. Nothing to worry about, nothing to see here. Donahoe ordered Case and Ahern to leave. He walked them out to the sidewalk and told them to forget about what they'd seen. Later that morning, though, Ahern was at home and turned on his radio and heard a news report about the body of a young woman who'd been found in a vacant lot on Norton Avenue, not far from that bungalow. He and his partner knew it had to be connected to the bloody scene from the night before, especially after witnesses at the scene described a dark sedan and after the victim's shoes and purse were found between the bungalow court and the lot on Norton Avenue. But neither man spoke about it for many years. Captain Donahoe had made it clear that the incident at the bungalow was never to be reported or discussed with anyone. According to Ahern, the man who had produced Donahoe's courtesy card was none other than Ben Bugsy Siegel, who, records say for certain, suddenly canceled a trip to New York on the morning of January 14th. The two detectives later received promotions to the chief's legendary gangster squad and retired with honors many years later. So what happened at the bungalow that night? Well, the bungalow court was a place where Brenda Allen kept the girls that worked for her call girl operation. Beth had likely been taken there after she was picked up at the Biltmore Hotel. She'd been killed and then cut up in the bathroom of the bungalow where the detectives had found all the blood. And who were the three men who were present that night with Ben Siegel? Case and Ahern never revealed their identities, but it's likely the driver of the sedan was the short, dark-skinned man who worked for Brenda Allen, who was known to drive Beth short around, Morris Clement. It's also likely that one of the other men was Al Greenberg, owner of Al Green's Nightlife Bar and the boss of the McCadden Gang. Greenberg had worked with Siegel back in the days of the Siegel and Lansky operation in New York. He also was involved in a number of jewel robberies with Siegel at the time of the murder. He knew Beth Short, who had worked for him as a B-girl. According to LAPD transcripts, as well as research conducted by author John Gilmore, the fourth man involved in the murder was almost undoubtedly Jack Anderson Wilson, who had been involved in the recent jewel robbery at the Macombo. I believe that when Beth returned to Los Angeles, she tried to contact the man who had fathered her child. Whoever this man was, Beth had become a dangerous liability for him. Knowing he needed to handle the problem, Siegel decided to make sure she was silenced. He could have just killed her and made her disappear, but Siegel took things further. 
violent and erratic under the best of circumstances and under great personal and financial stress at the time due to the staggering cost of getting the Flamingo up and running in Vegas, Bugsy, already known for his horrible temper, was a ticking time bomb. He beat, Savage and literally butchered Beth Short. He slashed her up, slicing her body and cutting the rose tattoo from her thigh. Siegel or one of the others washed the body in the bungalow's bathtub, and then one of the mob doctors who performed abortions meticulously cut her apart to make it easier to move the body to the location where it was eventually found. Whoever the doctor was, he had little choice. He faced exposure or death at the hands of the mob if he didn't cooperate. So it wasn't a deviant who got off on cutting up women who severed Beth Short. He did it simply so that she'd fit in a car trunk. But murder wasn't enough for Siegel. He killed the girl because Jack Dragna had refused to do it when asked. Siegel wanted to make sure that never happened again, so he coldly chose a spot to leave Beth's body where Dragna couldn't miss it. The closest empty lot to Dragna's house. He lived just 200 yards away from the corner at 39th and Morton. Siegel wanted to make sure that Dragner received the message that he left for him. He slashed Beth's face from ear to ear, the Sicilian code of murder for those who talked. Jack Dragner received the message loud and clear, and, well, things didn't go well for Bugsy after that either. Five months later, he was murdered in his girlfriend's Beverly Hills mansion. With the horror that surrounds the death of Beth Short, it's no surprise that her ghost is said to still walk in Hollywood. There are two different hotels that claim to be home to a restless spirit. One of them is the Cecil Hotel, which was the inspiration for the hotel season of the show American Horror Story. Beth is said to be one of the resident spirits of the hotel, but, well, unfortunately, there's little truth to this story. It can only be traced back to 2015. When researching the Cecil Hotel for a television piece, a writer claimed that in 1947, Beth Short was rumored to have been seen drinking at the Cecil's bar just a few days before her murder. But it isn't true. The researcher found this bit of information in a newspaper article from 1995 that claimed that Beth was, quote, seen in the bar at the Cecil Hotel with a girlfriend and two sailors. It was also said that the hotels and bars on the same block were favorite hangouts for the Black Dahlia, quote, during the week before she was killed. Well, a little research would have disproved this easily. According to the LAPD, the last place that Beth was ever seen alive was at the Biltmore on January 9th. She was not seen again until after her body was found in that empty lot on January 15th. There are no records of Beth Short ever being at the Cecil. And in fact, she couldn't have been hanging out in the bars along that block in the week before her murder either. We know that she was in San Diego during that time, not at the Cecil or really anywhere else in L.A., the last place that Beth was seen alive was at the Biltmore. After Red Manley dropped her off that night, she made telephone calls in the lobby and used the restroom to freshen up her makeup. Whatever anxiety Beth was experiencing that night seems to have left an impression behind on the hotel. Since 1947, people have encountered her in the hotel lobby, in the bar, and especially in the elevator. Most who have come face to face with her have no idea who she is or that she's no longer among the living. One man reported riding with her to the sixth floor, and then when he turned to let her leave, the elevator car discovered that he was suddenly alone. The girl in the black dress had disappeared. Days later, he was in a bookstore, ran across a book about the Black Dahlia murder, and realized that Beth was the girl he saw in the elevator that day. 
that Beth's ghost leaves witnesses trying to understand what happened to them is really a fitting way for her spirit to appear. She leaves behind puzzles in death, just as she did in life. Today, the Black Dahlia murder is a very cold case. Since the time of her death in 1947, many books have been written and many theories have been offered about who killed Beth Short. But no matter how many theories, books, and documentaries have come out of the case, to this date, it remains officially unsolved. No one has ever been charged with the crime. Of course, there is no statute of limitations for murder, but it's doubtful that the LAPD or the district attorney's office will ever really reopen the Black Dahlia case. Beth Short's death will always remain a mystery from the dark side of Hollywood, and maybe this is why her ghost still walks at the Biltmore Hotel. We'll never really know. But one thing we do know is that Beth's story remains a cautionary tale for everyone who goes to Hollywood to chase the dream of fame and fortune, because Beth Short found more fame in death than she ever found in life. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words? Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, 
prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Are you just queuing it up? Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Are you ready? Yep. Thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season five of the podcast, Haunted Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hi. Hey. <laughs> What's up, Just man? thinking about selling wine. Just thinking about time. Orson Welles. I can't help it. We have been laughing about it since our last he episode. He has not stopped. <laughs> not okay. for a moment. No more Orson Welles, I swear. Oh, okay. So we're done. Yeah, no, believe no, it. no, no more Orson Welles. Although I hope everyone went out and Googled. Actually, just go to YouTube and you can get the Orson Welles frozen pee thing. But, you know, you got to know who Orson Welles is or it's I've never pointless. seen him. Yeah. yeah. I've never seen him before until yeah. I knew he was. Yeah, but it's, yeah, you you have to. Well, and you know that's not a good representation of him. You know, sure. two years before he died. But um, yeah, it's. Um, At least he looked like he was having fun. Uh, he was. I'm sure he was. So you know. Anyway, <laughs> where no do we, more. Where do we no go more from Orson here? Wells. Um, you know, it is. Uh, it's May. Yes. It's now May, uh, which you know we had our April showers. Now we're. Having our Mayflowers. You've all posted and, that uh, Justin Timberlake meme. You know, yeah, for a it's long all time. that's over, and you know, it's uh, everybody's done the rabbit, rabbit, and white rabbit, and yeah. everything for the first. So now it's spring, and uh, we have a lot of stuff going on. Actually, um, ghost tours. I mean, people don't think. I mean, I think our listeners probably do, but a lot of people don't think, well, who does ghost tours and ghost hunts in the summer and spring and summertime? We, we do. do. So uh, our tours in, you know, all over the place are getting started. We're kicking off in Chicago, but the Alton tours have been going now for a couple weeks and uh, our Springfield tours are, are going. And so we've got a lot of stuff going on and we've got a lot of dinners coming up for the spring and the summer, which are just a fun way to go do something without, you know, people are still, I mean, even now, I mean, it's, it's been, you know, it's, it's May, we're getting closer and closer all the time, but people want to do something that they feel like is, you know, semi-safe. So, you know, we've got these dinners we do with a 50 person cap, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we're spread out throughout the room and it's a good way to come enjoy, you know, stuff about the Donner party at Growlin Poe, Haunted Hotels, you know, Hell Hath No Fury, Wyatt Earp, all this stuff we can do over the summer. And we're just getting ready to start posting some of our fall stuff, too, because we've got River Road Tours this summer, which is a, an excellent time to go, by the yeah. way, with the River Road Tours, because it's it's the buses are, are nice and cool. But yet we get to get off the bus and do stuff. And it's a fun time. It's a good time to do that kind of stuff. But, you know, we'll have those coming up in the fall, too, mm-hmm. and lots of dinners and stuff. And we're getting ready to post a lot of that stuff. So. 
um, it's exciting. And, you know, we had a, I had a new book out. Uh, my Edgar Allan Poe book came out a couple weeks ago. And that has been, um, as I, I thought people would be interested, because I know a lot of people have an interest in Poe, mm-hmm. and it's turned out to be a really great seller, which I'm, I, I thank you to everybody who's gone out and bought a copy. Um, it's, uh, it's very much appreciated because this was one of those kind of labor of love things, just because I'm not, as I mentioned in the book, I'm far from a Poe scholar. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not an expert, but I just have an interest. And, you know, with me, when I can write about anything I want to, I just write about the things that interest me. So um, I just thought this would be something that would be cool to do. I've always wanted to do it. And so there it is. Now we've got another issue of The Morbid Curious came out a couple weeks ago, too. And people have been really responsive to that. And I'm sure that when we talked about this multiple times, but I think everybody knows that that came from our podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it came from some reporter who wrote about it for the Colorado Springs newspaper yeah. in 1912, uh, but or 1911, I guess, who wrote about the morbid curious coming to look at this. And I said to Cody, you know, that's got to be the name for something. Like We've got to use that. we got to use that for something. And I actually wrote it down on a post-it note and had it hanging in the office oh, for yeah? like two years. And then um, I just thought, you know, we should do something like this. Because years ago, back in the 90s, we used to do um, a Ghost of the Prairie magazine. And then it became the American Hauntings magazine. And it um, and it was fun. It was fun to do. It was the era of the zines. And sure. it was definitely a zine kind of thing. And um, in fact, a couple of years ago at the conference, we had a big collection of them that we gave away, like the early oh, issues nice. and stuff. Um, so that was kind of fun. But I thought, you know, the, now it's so much easier to reach, you know, different writers from all over the place. And so mm-hmm. we get a lot of people to contribute to them. So uh, it was fun to do. And I thought, well, that's perfect name for it. Morbid Curious with, the, you know, the subject matter and everything. So um, but but speaking of that, we will be doing a fall issue. So. If you've got something that you would like to get into a future issue, uh, send it to us. Um, I hit up a couple of people last time that that didn't were able to make the deadline, so I'm hoping they will for this next ep- or next issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but if you are somebody who has an interest in it, um, send us. You know, go go to the website, go to AmericanHauntings.net, where all this stuff is. Check out the Morbid Curious section of the website and see what it is we're looking for, okay. the length and stuff. Send it to us, and uh, we'll take a look at it. You know, Maybe we can't use it for the next issue, but we might use it for a future one. Um, we don't want a lot of like personal experiences. We want more stuff that... I mean, I, I like to include like one of those in an issue. Uh, I've got several that I'm kind of sitting on at the moment, mm-hmm. but we're definitely looking for historically-based ghost stuff, true crime, whatever, you know, um, if you've bought the magazine, you see what it is that we're writing about that we're including. And, uh, I'd like to not be the biggest contributor to every issue. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, we, but we've had some, we've had some great people. Uh, I know that April, uh, Slaughter is going to be contributing more often. Amanda Woomer has been contributing to every issue. Uh, so I think we'll start to see some regulars, but I'd like to see some more stuff coming in. Uh, because, um, you know, I just like to get the stuff out there. It's fun. Yeah. It's a fun thing to do. It's fun to put together. It's something different. You know, it's not my usual stuff. So anyway, uh, so check that out. Um, but you can check out all of our stuff. If you go to what well, the dinners are at dinnerandspirits.com, which is pretty easy to remember, mm-hmm. but I usually just try to send everybody to AmericanHauntings.net. And that'll, yeah, that'll funnel yeah. you to wherever you got to yeah, go. Yeah, Exactly. 
Uh, let's dive into some listener reviews. Um, sure. Uh, this one is titled, uh, This Historian Loves It. It's from Maloka73, maybe. I don't know why you try to pronounce it. Mean, they take the time to uh, do I, it, okay. you know. Right. Um, I came to be one of the 20-something that needed to push uh, past, the, or to, needed to push the podcast past the 1,000 review mark. Masterful storytelling and production. <gasps> no one's ever said that. Great, <laughs> great chemistry between the hosts. I wish I lived close to you all so I could attend live events. Thank you so much for that. Um, you did help put us over that mark. Um, this next one's titled, uh, The Only Podcast for Me. It's from Perry's Mom 10. So seriously, I've tried many other podcasts and I've yet to find one I've, uh, I've stuck with. They all came across as too cheesy, boring. Like Stacy's mom? She's got it going on. Uh, they came across as too cheesy, boring, or dramatized. I love Troy and Cody. It's a perfect mix of history and ghosts, both of which I love. Started binging every episode in the fall, and I'm now caught up. New Orleans was my favorite, but I've thoroughly enjoyed them all. Keep up the good work, guys. Hope this brings you closer to a thousand, and then a bunch of emojis. This last one is from uh, A Woodring six seven zero six, titled "Pretty Great Podcast." It says Troy told me to do this. <laughs> that's it that's the, that's oh hey hey that's all right so you know it, yeah. you did it so we i mean we've been begging yeah, for them so we have we have begged for them so thank you yeah thanks for everybody oh. that helped get us this far and hey, i did that. say they didn't even have to write anything you did they could just put whatever you know so you did <laughs> so you okay let's we're, let's we're gonna dive into part two here we're gonna go through some suspects your theories all that stuff i said in the last episode and say it in this one i'm gonna start each of these with a question okay um, and you definitely talked about this but since since this is something we talked about back in season three, why is this what the was season three case, Velisca? Um, oh yeah, yeah. We okay. talked about. Sorry. I was like, if you, I was like, <laughs> sorry, it's been a while. It's cool. It's like if you could get, if you could know the answer to any yes. of these things. Why? What this is it about is one of them? This one. I I don't know. I've always been fascinated with it. Yeah. Um, you know, I I I do say that. I did say that in the episode that this is one of my. You know, when I die, I want to know. I want answers. I want answers, damn it. And this is the answer. This is an answer I want. And I'm going to be really pissed if it turns out to be George Hodel. It's not. I'm telling you, <laughs> fucking it's not. Uh, but anyway, um, I, uh, I've i just always been fascinated with the story. I and, and, you know, I fed, like, in the last episode, I talked about Catherine Ramsland telling me that, you know, men are the ones who, you know, who've turn this story yes. into more than it is. <laughs> she's probably um, not wrong. No, she's probably not because I mean, you know, and even when you know, even if when you know things about Beth, I mean, even when you know what a liar she is and manipulator she is yeah. and freeloader and all this stuff. And even when you know how bad, and this is, a, see, this is one of those things only I would bring up mm -hmm. when you know how bad her teeth were. Now oh, I didn't really? talk about that in the episode. I not. talk about it in the book. Uh, very bad dental care Aww. with this girl. And she did a lot to try to hide that, mm -hmm. uh, which is why you don't normally see the pictures that you see. Sometimes you will see her with her mouth open, but that's only because of the like fake cap she put on and such really bad teeth. And that's a, that's a big thing with me. Yeah, teeth are a big thing. With she me, just brush but, them. Well, it's not, I think there was, more, I think there was more, more to on. it than that. Oh, okay. Um, but, um, even knowing all that, you know, I'll, I see her picture and I, all I think is, man, what a knockout, you know, what a knockout. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big part of it is because we see her at her best, uh, her mugshot photo, for instance, not good, not, it's not super attractive, I can't remember but if I saw that when I was looking some through. of her other stuff is, and you, you get it, you understand the, the mystique behind her. And I think that that's the, that's the thing I think that gets a lot of people is, and you look at it and you say, man, what a wasted life. You know, she's 23 years old. Yeah. You know, what a wasted life. Um, so I don't know. I, I, but I, but I do want to know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just 
for whatever reason, whatever the reason I got interested in it in the first place, I, I want to know the solution. And because we can't, I, well, as we talked about in the last episode, that is what has made this case so famous is because we don't know who the killer was. And I think that that's, you know, probably for me, I'm, I, I, you know, I got taken in by it just for that same reason. Yeah. So. All right. Well, let's talk about some people that, it's, that definitely were not the killer, but were it's definitely a high At least on interesting. The, on the suspect yes. list. Yes. The suspect, uh, the first one we're going to talk about is Leslie Dillon. So 27-year-old bellhop, aspiring mystery writer, former mortician's assistant. He began to write to a police psychiatrist who we talked about in, in our Babes of Englewood section, and he looked like a hero in that one because he yes. created one of the very first profiles for a killer. Right. And uh, and it didn't turn out to be pretty accurate, but as it turns out, he's not. He wasn't quite as top-notch as, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. You know he, was, yeah, he was doing some bad things. He was definitely early on in his, I mean, early on in that whole profiling thing, and He's kind of a sleazebag anyway. Yes. So, so he know. writes in about his intense interest in uh, sexual psychopath- psychopathy, things like that. He hoped to write a book about it. He offered up a suspect named Jeff Connors. And the psychiatrist began to believe that Connors was a, a figment of Dylan's imagination, that Dylan was actually the guilty one. The two decide they're going to meet, and they kind of bounce around different places. Um, decide, okay, let's go to Vegas. Uh, alongside Sergeant John O'Mara, who posed as a chauffeur, and Dylan, so, was who who if you picture him in your head, is he probably you're going to not look like a chauffeur? No, you're going to no, you're because you're going to picture this big Irish cop who probably you know is probably like six foot tall, weighs about two fifty, mm-hmm. could like break down a door with his bare hands. I mean, and he's driving and, the car. and is and is supposed to be a chauffeur, yeah, you know, and you driver. know he looks like a lunghead, you know, big lunghead, you know, yeah. tough guy. And, uh, you know, beat up looking face probably. I, I'm just imagining this entire thing about right. this guy's like a, you know, the a, he's part of the police boxing league and, you know, one of those guys. Sure. Uh, because something about Sergeant John O'Mara, you know, it just sounds tough. It just sounds like a guy who doesn't look like a chauffeur. Right. So. right. Hat's, hat's probably not big enough for his <laughs> Right. Exactly. One of those guys. Uh, Dylan agrees <laughs> to go to San Francisco to ID Connors. They get there, can't find him, surprisingly enough. Uh, Dylan's eventually finally like, okay, jigs up. Like, we're just going to arrest this guy. We're going to interrogate the, the hell out of him. Let's talk about how he gets released from this interrogation. <laughs> so this is such a, like, I know. he Mr. Beans his way. It is. Like, it's just so, like I said, I mean, if you had, if you tried to pitch this in a movie, they'd go, okay, that's not good. Yeah. That's stupid. <laughs> so that's dumb. not going to work. That's so dumb. He really did. I and mean, it's a true story. He wrote a message on a postcard. And when he got a free second, threw it out the window. And somebody found it on the street and was like, Help me! I'm being held. I'm being kidnapped by the police. I'm not in. I'm not. I'm not guilty. Someone help me! Kind of. Yeah. And they gave it to. It made its way to an attorney who got him out. That's insane. And it's like, come on, really? <laughs> you know, but it's true. It really happened. Uh, it turns out uh, Connors is a real person. But his real <laughs> yeah. name is Artie Lane. Um, who I was like, wait, Artie Lane? No, that's Artie Lane. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, different, different guy. Different yeah. guy. Yeah. Uh, Lane even worked at Columbia. Why the? Name the fake name is it a fake name or did you get the name wrong? Well, no, I think he I think he was trying to use this information to make himself seem important because if only he knew who, the real identity of the guy, uh, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, he's got, and he can, so okay. I mean, he used a fake name for himself to try to stay out of trouble. Sure, but only he knew who the real killer was, even though he wasn't. Got so. it. So Dylan's innocent of that crime. 
Um, he tries, <laughs> right. to, tries to sue, but he's kind of already in some deep shit. Uh, this for some other <laughs> stuff that he's done. This, however, did lead to a great, his, his treatment led to a grand jury yeah. uh, investigation in the handling of this case and others, costing uh, DeRiver, DeRiver, lost his job. His job, yeah. he's basically given morphine to his wife. Right. Um, which, I mean. She's <laughs> like a junkie. He's writing her prescriptions. Right. You know, uh, that's a like a something ripped out of today's headlines kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and this, the, the grand jury investigation, I spend a lot more time on it in the book. And because it's not, directly related to what we're doing. I didn't really include it in the episode, but Mm -hmm. that grand jury investigation was not just about the black Dahlia. That was just a big part of it. Right. Uh, Because there had been a lot of, at this point, there were been a lot of questions raised about a lot of the corruption in the police department and the grand jury investigation wasn't necessarily for suspects in any of these cases. It was more for, um, looking into what was the hell was going on in the police department. And they, uh, they did a lot of house cleaning at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't get rid of all the corruptions that wouldn't happen until uh, chief Parker came along years later, but um, they did, they did clean out a lot of bad cops. Um, there was just a lot of, well, I mean, like any big city in those days, you know, coming out of prohibition the way that it was and and the 1930s and things, there were just a lot. I mean, Let's let's even go back further and talk about most police departments began to organize in the early 1900s into the teens. That's when they really got organized into a an actual, you know, department rather than just a bunch of deputies or something that were hired like in the days of Wyatt Earp or mm-hmm. something. This was, you know, they were really putting it into a military type situation and you know, uh, in those days, I mean, most of the guys they hired were, if they if they weren't a cop, they'd have been a criminal. And a lot of them were criminals before they were cops mm-hmm. because they needed guys who were tough because you had to take on some real bruisers. So you needed somebody who had, you know, who wasn't wasn't afraid to beat the hell out of somebody to get a, con- you know, c- get a conviction or yep. to get a confession out of somebody. And so you hired a lot of fringe characters to be cops and it took years it took decades of just you know one one bad cop hires another bad cop and you know it just went on for for years and years and it wouldn't be until well in LA it wasn't until chief parker came in and really started cleaning house and then you know you had the miranda case coming in that you can't just beat the shit out of somebody mm-hmm. to get a confession with a rolled up phone book anymore right. and rubber hoses i mean this was standard procedure at the time but we look at it now and we go oh wow well that's terrible but that was how everything was done back mm-hmm. then so you know um that was what this grand jury investigation was really all about uh, people wanted to know how all of these cases had been unsolved. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. So <laughs> glad to see we've cleaned up all of our police. Department. Well, I know, but <laughs> no, I get, and I, I wasn't going to get into all that. But <laughs> I get what you mean. You know, but I mean, but but you get the idea that this stuff is not new. Yeah. Um. You know, this the the problems that have been with police departments and things. This is not a new thing. This has been going on since the very beginning. Mm-hmm. There are the majority of cops are good cops. Mm -hmm. I don't care what people say. The majority of them are, but there's going to always be those bad apples. There's always going to be those people who are looking for the easy way or a way that, you know, they feel, I mean, in this it's any business, but there's always going to be people who feel disgruntled that they don't feel like they're getting what they deserve. 
I'm always going to be, you know, I may, I may idolize John Dillinger, mm-hmm. but, but that's just because he was fun. Uh, on the other hand, I'm always going to be on the side. Uh, I'm going to err on the side of the police most of the time. Um, b- but there are bad ones out there and most good cops will tell you that mm-hmm. they will agree with you and say, yeah, we've got some real shit bags in our ranks, at, but what do you do? I mean, it's tough. It's yeah. really tough. Um, so, but I don't want to talk about now. I want to talk about the 1940s, sure. you know, um, and in the night, did you, I'm just trying to give you an idea of what the police, the LAPD was like in the 1940s, uh-huh. you know, um, for instance, there was a movie that came out a couple of years ago. I guess it's been more than a couple now, seven or eight years ago, Gangster Squad. Do you remember that? Yep. With uh, I, I, Ryan, Ryan Gosling, Ryan Gosling and, and all these guys. That movie is a load of crap. Yeah, the I, Gangster I Squad. Yeah, well, it. not. I mean, it's fun. It's yeah. a fun movie. Yep. But Sean Penn is Mickey Cohen. Yeah. Well, we missed something there because Mickey Cohen was like the most entertaining gangster ever. Mm-hmm. Everybody. I mean, he, don't get me wrong. He was a gangster and he was committing crimes. But the reporters and, and the people loved him. And we talked about him in a past episode. Yeah. He was funny. He was funny. And he, you know, so Sean Penn, bad characterization, but the movie's fun, but it's not accurate. Yeah. I mean, the gangster squad was one of the dirtiest squads around. And we even talk about that in this episode Mm -hmm. where these two guys who went along with this whole thing and looked the other way ended up on the gangster squad because Mm -hmm. they, it was, it was a job that you got as a prize you know, because you could keep your mouth shut. Yeah. So you were always going to earn extra money. You know, these guys were all, you know, all, you know, taking stuff on the arm. They were all, you know, it just, it, it's, there's another book. There was a book that was written about the gangster squad that is really delves into the dirt. And then there's another, I swear to God, the same year, mm-hmm. this would have been like 2013, 2014, two different books came out around the, about the gangster squad and told the exact opposite story. Oh, really? Yeah. Because it's always going to be, you know, there's always going to be that. It's just, that's just the way it is. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, I'm completely on a, I love this time period in LA history. Yeah. And so I'm always, I, I, I'm on a tangent here. Let's, let's, let's get on with it. All right. So, so I am going to put you on the spot here real quick. And I want to question you about something. Okay. Um, I, so are you familiar with the book, Black Dahlia, Red Rose? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I like that. And that's when I mentioned the thing about Leslie Dillon. And I mentioned that there mm-hmm. was a book yeah. that presented it fairly convincingly. So, that's mostly what that book is about. And I enjoyed the book. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with it. Yeah. But I mean, you know, but I don't, my theory in this episode yeah. is me just looking at the things that she was involved in and throwing some stuff against the wall to make it stick. I don't know. Yeah. And I said that right off top. I, I really don't know. I could be completely wrong. The only thing that I feel really confident about mm-hmm. is that George Hodel was not the Black Dahlia. Right. Well, so Other you, than that, I don't know. You you poked so many holes in the George Hodel theory. I didn't know if you if there was anything blar- glaringly obvious with the Leslie um, I didn't, Mark you know, Hansen. I didn't get into it as deep because um, it hasn't, it's not as famous. I mean, sure. the problem I have with this is that <laughs> people see this and they think that it's solved. Right. Because just because his publisher spent a lot of money to publicize that book. Right. Black Dahlia, Red Rose didn't get that kind of advertising. Sure. And there's lots of other books. Uh, I mean, John Gilmore's book talks a lot about Jack Anderson, and I think he was right that he was involved. Mm-hmm. I do, but he wasn't the only one involved, and I don't think Gilmore thought that either. Uh, but um, 
and you know, and even you know, Black Dahlia, Red Rose. She's she's very um, well. This is what I think, but I don't know. Yeah, you can't say the same about this okay. Hodel crap. Yeah, so, so. Let, let's talk about this. So the most popular Black Dahlia murder suspects, thanks to I guess his daughter and then his son, essentially, uh, we got on the radar because of yeah, the daughter. And it kept I mean, I guess, but son. yeah, the daughter who was like a you know, I don't know. <sighs> yeah. So. Well, you know, they talk about the daughter being like a pathological liar, uh-huh. but then on the other hand. He takes it seriously. So, yeah. so which is it? Uh, yeah. Is she a liar or is she telling the truth? Can't, you yeah, know? he can't seem to have it. Um, yeah, both ways there. So, um, so okay. So he's arrested when his 15 year old daughter uh, claimed that they had an incestuous relationship and that he killed a black dahlia. This happened to be going. I could on. believe one. I can't believe the other. That's my problem. Right, right, right. Well, that so means people are. Well, it's weird because I mean, you know, I'm definitely not kink shaming anyone, but they're hosting orgies at their home. Yeah. So three witnesses testified to this, but he still was acquitted. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. Yeah, I don't there's know. a lot going on. I don't know. I, you know, I wasn't there. Um, right, and well, that's the thing. So, he, but he'd previously been accused of playing a part in the death of his secretary, Ruth Spalding, who died from a drug overdose. Might have killed her because she was getting too close, to, like exposing him for medical fraud. Is that kind of what right, I'm to right. gather? Yeah, okay. that, and that probably had more to do with it than anything else. Right. Um, if if he was involved in her, I mean, th- all we know is that she committed suicide, and he was there. Mm-hmm. We don't know if he was involved. We don't know if he knew she was going to kill herself. We don't know. No Got one it. knows. I mean, okay. you can suggest anything you want to. Sure. Uh, but because you can't libel the dead. I mean, right. I can say Abraham Lincoln was Jack the Ripper. I mean, you know, I mean, ignoring the time <laughs> issue there. But I'm all I'm saying, though, is that's why there's so many Jack the Ripper suspects, uh-huh. because you could say it's anybody. As long as you I don't, mean, what, that's the impact thing. their estate. I think yeah, it's just this crazy thing. So, and you can't like this guy. You know, he. I, all I can say is he must really hate his dad. Yes. Um, and he can't impact his estate because he's the heir. Right. So, I mean, you can say anything you want to apparently about your parents. Um, I just don't. I mean, I guess I. I don't know. I mean. There's no question this dude is a freak. Yeah. I mean, I have no argument about that. Right. And, you know, the 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 people he surrounded himself with, the stuff that he probably did. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this whole Black Tanya thing is just such a reach. Yeah. But he had to pick the most lurid thing he could find. But then it just keeps going after that. He just keeps finding more people that it, you know, he just keeps picking like unsolved murders and blaming them on his dad. Right. I think I'm I'm think I'm gonna do the same thing. I, I my not? dad had to have killed somebody, right? Yeah, why so, not? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Start so, connecting the dots. Yeah. And, yes, that you've you've pretty much you picked everything apart. You know, we talked about he's never a prime suspect. He's thinks he's connected to the pose of the body, but he's really not. The handwriting, oh, man, the just... ha- proximity of the house, the car, is in no physical shape to get yeah, Well that's and that's the that's the big thing right there. I mean, you can ignore all the rest of it and go, oh, well, that's just Troy arguing about stuff. But, you know, you can, when you get to the part about how he's, you know, he spends two months in the hospital and then two weeks later, he's supposed to be out murdering Beth Short. I just have my doubts about this. That's all, you know, I mean, and I'm not the only one, obviously there are other people too, but, um, you know, I just, it just drives me crazy. If I post something on my Facebook, my public Facebook page about the Black Dahlia, someone will inevitably say, oh, it's not unsolved. It was like, okay, no, Mm. you know, because they saw it in a magazine or they saw it on TV, you know, because the publisher spent so much money publicizing this because when it came out, it was a big deal. I got excited. I went and bought the book and then I opened it up to the section with the photos and I'm like, the fuck that isn't Beth Short. Neither (laughs) one of them are. That's not even the same woman. You know, I mean, it was obvious. It's 
obvious if you look at these pictures. Go ahead and Google them. Look it up. Yeah. Um, the pictures don't even remotely resemble her as her family said. And, you know, and it's like, well, now we, and then of course, once a woman came forward and said, oh, wait a minute, one of those is me. me. (laughs) And so after the experts had already said it wasn't the same woman anyway, and then somebody comes up and says, well, that's me. And then he changes his story. Well, it didn't matter. That's just what got me interested. Okay. But why would you have gotten interested? Because neither one of them are the Black Dahlia anyway. So what, what did you just see this as something easy you could do because your dad was like a suspect for like three minutes. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was like, they were hauling in everybody, every doctor, every abortionist, every, everybody that they could even remotely connect to anything. And the only reason they hauled him in is because, um, his daughter had, you know, had started this big thing about how her father had raped her. Mm -hmm. And so, well, he seems like a freak. Let's pull him in because that's what they were doing, you know? And I don't know, man, it just, it's just, um, I just find the whole thing very irritating. And I'm not, you know, I, I, maybe this guy truly believes this. Mm -hmm. It's very possible that he does. I I would, I would not, I'm not going to say, I mean, this guy used to be a cop. I get it, you know, and maybe he really believes it, but he really needs to look at it as this isn't an absolute fact. I need to look at the arguments against this. And Mm -hmm. I, I, he's only presenting one side of the story. And I mean, maybe you could say the same thing. I'm doing the same thing. I'm looking at it from the opposite view, but it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know, that's all. And and I don't, I'm not saying I'm right. When I put in there, I just, I knew that that people would want to know, well, what do, what, what do you think? Yeah. You know, well, this is what I think. I think that, and I, I'm not saying that the end is absolutely accurate. I just recounted that story of the cops. Mm-hmm. That's weird. I mean, that's some weird stuff there. Definitely, yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, I really, I do believe that she was part of this call girl ring. I really do. Mm-hmm. Based on who she knew, where she was at, what she was doing with her life. She took off. Uh, why would you not take off if you were pregnant and were supposed to abort this baby? Knowing how delusional she was, I'm sure she thought whoever had knocked her up was going to want to take her away and and make all her dreams come true. Well, when she found out that wasn't going to happen and she was threatened and said that she had to get an abortion, she took off. And then when people show up looking for her, she flees town. She thinks they're being followed, you know, all this stuff. And they, you know, they got rid of her. I mean, we, you look at this, my, this theory about, you know, with, with Benny Siegel involved in this and you go, Oh, well, why would you pick the most famous? Well, at the time he was just a gangster. Yeah. Now he's famous as a gangster. There's been, somehow. there's movies and stuff, but at the time he was just the guy running LA. I mm-hmm. mean, he was in charge. The syndicate had put him in charge, his bosses, his old friends, Luciano and Lansky, they put him in charge and he was already in the middle of, of screwing up Las Vegas and so he was supposed to be in charge of what was going on in Las Vegas, but he wasn't famous at the time. I mean, yes, well-known in L.A. because, you know, people liked him. We talked about that in a past episode. Yeah. But, you know, now we look back and we say, oh, yeah, he was famous. He was this famous gangster. But in hindsight, sure, but not in, not in 1946 and 47. He was just the guy running L.A. Right. And so, you know, I think it's plausible it's possible. I'm not saying that's the absolute truth. I, I don't know. Sure. I really don't know. Um, I just, I, you know, 
I threw it out there because it, it was interesting and it kind of made sense. Yeah. Well, um, so I don't know. Well, let's, you know. let's talk a little bit more about that. That I call it the mob proof here. But Vince Carter, not the basketball player, um, a retired Is there a basketball player named Vince. <laughs> I, I don't know that. So. Um, a retired LAP detective decided to write down many stories of crime and corruption experience within the department. Uh, the book, I believe, is called LAPD's Rogue Cops, Cover Ups, and the Cookie Jar. Available on Amazon <laughs> for, and I shit you not, eight hundred and eighty-four dollars. Yeah, it's not easy to find. Yeah, um, so it's out there if you want it. I guess it is out there. There are you can find it other places. I'm sure. Yeah, I just there I are. couldn't believe it. Yeah, uh, and just remember, just because someone says like, "Oh, it's, well, it's on well, eBay for a billion dollars," right? Like, doesn't mean it's worth it? that. Yeah, yeah, one of my books was on there for like nine hundred and two dollars. Look I'm at like, that! Who the hell buy, pay that? I wouldn't pay nine cents for it, yeah. but they, you know, uh, you're selling yourself short. Um, so yeah, I mean, you pretty much went through all this thing, but yeah, okay. So police courtesy card, I'm guessing that's sure. Everybody had those though. I mean, is that mob a, guys. Is that? An, I mean, it's got to be an off the books. Kind oh, well, of, absolutely. Okay. I, I like, mean, you know, really like these out, Capone like, and all those guys had them in Chicago. All, you, all it takes is some dirty police captain that you've sure. got on your payroll, and I'm sure that you know Siegel knew somebody, and he probably had Cohen. I'm sure had the same things. Okay, and these were cards that said, you know. It, you know, they're your get out. They're literally your get out of that's jail free figured, card. Yeah. That's how. The, that's where Monopoly got the idea, <laughs> right? So that's, yeah, the, they pull these guys over. He pulls the card. Detectives uh, eventually they see blood on the wall in the house. He walks in. It looks like a slaughterhouse, and they say it's from a bloody nose. Uh huh. Yeah. I feel like they were. Well, just it was doing really that. just. Why don't you call your captain and see what he right, says? Right. Donahoe shows up and and says, uh, you know, oh yeah, you know, it's uh, you know, or I guess it wasn't, yeah, you know, he shows up and he says, oh, he, you didn't see anything, yeah, you know, whatever you whatever you think you saw, you didn't see it, yeah, you need to just forget all and about you see, it. And you see it in the movies too, where like they'll see a, oh, you know, sure. see a guy, it's like, oh yeah, you fell down an elevator shaft onto some bullets, you know, yeah, like, right, right, one of those kind of things. Well, you know, it's like every mob murder in Chicago, where I've spent a lot more time studying mob stuff. Every one of them is unsolved. I mean, it <laughs> didn't matter. I mean, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, we take it for granted it was arranged by Capone, mm-hmm. but technically it's unsolved. Uh-huh. You know, all this stuff is, and that's just the way that it worked at the time, you know, and that's what this was too. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so I don't like this, but the, it kind of was funny. It said it wasn't a deviant who got off on cutting up women. Yeah. Did it simply so she'd fit in Yeah, well, I mean, that I think that takes a lot of the, you know... Um, mystique out of this Mm -hmm. you know we we've always assume it's like some kind of like deranged you know uh, okay let me give you an example everybody talks about i mean and don't get me wrong he was nuts but everybody talks when you you see this list of serial killers and somehow ed gein always ends up on the list yeah he wasn't a serial killer he killed two people he dug up a lot of he just dug up a lot of bodies because he was twisted and sick and he was trying to make a woman suit out of dead bodies um this is the same thing i mean this is not some you know some ritual killer who put her out on display to you know for some you know sick twisted sexual reason they needed to fit her in a trunk trunks weren't that big so what's the easiest way to do it cut her in half Mm mm-hmm so I mean that's that's where I I know it's disgusting but yeah I think if you if you can look at this and see it as a possibility. That's mm-hmm. what we're talking about. And that's that's all this is meant to be, right. is a possible theory. I, I really don't know. It's not like the way I feel about the Lizzie Borden case, where I can actually show you evidence of who did it mm-hmm. and who didn't do it. 
this is a case of the same way I did with, I spent more time telling you who didn't do it with, yeah. with than who, who did, because I don't know who did. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I just think it's, uh, I think it's plausible and it's, it's, it's food for thought. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a possibility. I like it. It's yeah. just not George Hodel. That's all I, that's all I'm going to say. Just not George Hodel. So, uh, I don't care if you saw it on TV. Well, where there's... I read it on the internet. Doesn't where, make it true. Where there's dramatic history, there are often ghosts. So let's talk about some ghosts. It's been a while since we've talked about some ghosts, it feels like. Well, we talked about Marion Parker's ghost well, quite a bit know. in the last I episode. I just mean today. Before that. that today. Today, it's been yes, a while. that is true. So there are two hotels, of course, that claim to be home of the restless spirit of yeah. Beth Short, the Cecil, of which is course. not, yeah. So she was she was never never there. There's no evidence. Well, she was I mean, ever she could have she could there have gone drink. there. It was a it was a semi popular spot, not so much by the 40s, but at one time it was popular. It's possible. It's just that the stories that say when she was there are impossible. She could not have been there the week before she was killed because she was in San Diego. And there's no record of her ever being there. But you know, so when stories get started like that, you have to kind of let them go mm-hmm. you know um i think that if beth's ghost does haunt somewhere i think the biltmore is a much more logical location for that to happen totally and there have been a lot of stories there really have been stories um by and told by people who did not know who she was mm-hmm. that she was famous oh, you know that would just be my dream honestly you see a beautiful woman uh, yeah, in the, no kidding. The, the elevator next to me disappears that that's how i would see a ghost like yeah, total, yeah. i'm fine with it sign me up right now um, and yeah, we've you know, heard the classic story: the guy in the elevator days mm-hmm. later sees a sees a what, newspaper, books something like that, or whatever, puts it all together. Um, like you said, no one's ever been officially charged with the crime, and like many other sad tales, Beth Short found more fame in death than she ever found in life. So, and that's what makes it. When you asked me at the beginning of our last episode, why this story, why is it so famous? Um, I think that's that's the main reason mm-hmm. why is because it, it's always going to be the ultimate cautionary tale yeah. of Hollywood. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons that this story has stuck around for so long. As I, I referenced in the last episode, it's Welcome to the Jungle, mm-hmm. a 1940s version. Uh, but nothing's changed. I mean, it's still that way. Somebody who gets off the bus in Hollywood today looking to become a movie star is going to deal with the same kind of shit that Beth Short had to deal with back in the 1940s yep. and any of the other girls. I mean, you know, the the the, the press wanted to s- tell stories about Lana Turner being discovered sitting on a stool in Schwab's drugstore. You know, some guy walks in and says she's a you know, knockout and she becomes famous. Those stories are the ones that they get all the press, but mm-hmm. most of it doesn't happen that way. Sure. For every one girl that was discovered in the 1940s and became an actress, for every one, there were probably a thousand that ended up not far from where Beth Short did, just hopefully not dead. Although yeah. some of them ended up dead too. Mm. So, And as we'll talk about in our next episode, because there are some other... There are some other murders around that time, including, like I said, a fairly famous disappearance that we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. too. I've had some people ask me about that to include it, so it's going to get included in our next episode. So awesome. I don't always often give previews you don't of get, episodes, you don't but I'm giving do you that one. So 
Awesome. So they know what it is, but I, I have no idea. What it is. But um, again, wanted to give a quick shout out to some of our new uh, Patreon subscribers. So they really help make the show sound how it sounds and get us to keep doing this, you know, week after week. So just give a quick shout out to Eric and Robert. Thank you very much for supporting the show. It is now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I don't actually have any new. Uh, letters this week, but some so many people have lately been hitting us up um, on Instagram. Yeah, I've which that too, which has been and, really nice. And and uh, Twitter and Twitter as too. Well. So yeah, so please keep doing that. Um, you can message us. Somebody left a really nice <laughs> comment about an episode. I think they were doing some research on the River Road or doing a project about that. And um, so and people have been messaging me on Instagram and then tweeting at us and stuff. So yeah, find us anywhere at American Hogs Podcast and Amer. Well, Amer- I wanted Hogs to Pod. I wanted to mention a recent Twitter exchange that you and I and American Pot uh, Hauntings Pod podcast did with uh, one of our listeners diana oh yeah and uh you had posted about you know have you listened to part two yet i was talking about marion parker (laughs) and i said if so we apologize if not don't we still haven't slept since the conclusion of the marion parker murder find it where you listen to podcasts and diana said i was so upset about the way part one ended i'll have to fortify myself (laughs) and then i added yeah this one is worse and she said, I flat out gasped when I heard the ending of part one. I don't usually do that. While listening to a podcast while folding laundry. And I said, oh boy, this might not be good for you then. Mm-hmm. And then you said, just make sure you're drinking white wine if you're listening while folding la- uh, folding laundry. And I said, or something stronger. And uh, I have not seen a reply from Diana since she's listened to the next part. I assume she has by then, by now, but... Uh, at the time, she had not listened to, at the time of our exchange. Oh, yeah, so I'd be curious. We've gotten a lot of feedback about part two of um, yeah. Marion Parker stuff from a few weeks ago. People have just been messaging me like sad faces. Yeah, and, and like, a lot of people uh, have so posted listen. things like, you know, other people who do podcasts even have said, that's one story I decided not to cover. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I couldn't. I, you know, I, I think it's a horribly tragic story and it's super depressing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wrote a book about that case and which is much more graphic than the podcast That's was, what you said, but, yeah. um, yeah, it's a, it's a terrible, it's a terrible, terrible story, but I, it's, it's also a good ghost story and I felt like we needed to include it. So yeah, especially because it's not one of the more well-known right, ones. Right, exactly. So I, I love that. Because, probably because most people don't, <laughs> don't want to don't, or, or don't have the bad taste to want to include it like we did. So I don't know, but anyway. Uh, yeah. So hit us up on social media and let's, yeah. let's have some fun there. Yeah. That's all I got, man. All right. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, As I always ask, please share this with your friends. Um, Leave us a review on iTunes. I know that we're, you know, we made it to where we wanted to make it. We made it. What the heck, you know, uh, keep keep Keep, posting. Keep this going. Uh, Keep it going. We really appreciate it. Um, Get people to subscribe. Apparently, that's a big deal. Yeah. I had no idea. Um, Tell your friends to subscribe, even if they don't listen to it. Just tell them to subscribe and just let them yeah. pile up. Grab they your little care. brother's phone. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, take people's phones and subscribe <laughs> them to the podcast. The next no, time you're putting kidding, your so. number in somebody's phone, <laughs> yeah. Venmo yourself $100 and then subscribe Yeah, to right, exactly, podcast. exactly. And then say, what's taking you so long? Oh, nothing. I'm almost done. I forgot my number. I forgot my number. <laughs> there you go. Who, who, who pays attention to phone numbers anymore? I, never I call can't myself. remember my own. So, yeah, just uh, just do that. So that'll uh, that helps out a lot. 
Awesome. All right. Well, this episode of the American Hauntings podcast is written by Troy Taylor. It's produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. If you're not a regular listener of the podcast, we hope you check out a bi-weekly dose of history, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. See the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. If you are a regular listener, we hope you'll take the time to review us on the Apple Podcast app and share the show with your friends, neighbors, relatives people you pass on the street, whoever. We couldn't and wouldn't do the show without you. If you're a fan, then you should know that American Hauntings is not just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, and more, and our main website is AmericanHauntings.net. For those of you who write to us and tell us you wish that we'd posted shows more often, well, you can have fresh content if you support the show on Patreon. That's not the only perk that you get, either. There are discounts, shirts, stuff in the mail, And you don't have to stuff. listen to this. And you don't oh, have to listen God. to this. For those who don't understand forever, how important man. our Patreon is, just go back and listen to the first season, and then listen to this one that's right patreon is what made it all get better so check it out at patreon.com slash american hauntings if you have any comments about the show i don't know why you bother with you read it so fast this is what people really complain about that when i read fast on twitter Instagram, no one can even understand what you're saying carrier pigeon and telegram which we did get a telegram so that's pretty awesome so, okay so. so if i didn't do this i know then no one would have sent us a telegram yeah, i guess so until next time yeah so long see you oh later. goodbye yep. i forgot goodbye so <laughs> see you later God damn it. <laughs> I do feel oh. sometimes like I'm doing the uh, the like side effects or whatever or like the like fine yeah. print on yeah. a commercial. Or, uh, you know, you have a gamble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the one eight hundred metro.